Our summaries this week contain three cases on criminal law, one from the Arkansas Supreme Court and two from the Court of Appeals. The first is McCullen v. State, 2023, ARC 190. The Arkansas Supreme Court affirmed convictions of first-degree murder, aggravated residential burglary, terroristic act, and first-degree terroristic threatening in a case where the defendant entered the home, killed the decedent mother of children, and fired into the floor in her children's room. This review will touch on one issue— Admission of Cell Phone Location Information, Justice Baker explained. The state introduced over-objection evidence of defendant's cell phone history. While defendant challenged the evidence under Daubert, the Supreme Court wrote that there was no abuse of discretion in its admission. Quote, A ping warrant was obtained for McCullen's cell phone number in an attempt to locate him, and a search warrant was also obtained to access the records of that cell phone. Using cell phone location information, police were able to create a map of McCullen's movements. At trial, the state called Special Agent Blake Downing with the FBI's Cellular Analysis Survey Team, or CAST, to discuss historical cell site location information, or CSLI, analysis, and his conclusions regarding McCullen's cell phone records. Regarding his motion in limine to exclude evidence of cell phone location, McCullen argued that the use of historical CSLI analysis to allege the location of McCullen's cell phone did not satisfy the requirements for the admission of scientific evidence under Daubert v. Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, Inc., 509 U.S. 579, and it relied upon speculation, lacked the proper foundation, and was more prejudicial than probative. Agent Downing testified at length during the hearing regarding the methodology and reliability of historical CSLI analysis, and the circuit court concluded that this evidence was admissible because the Daubert test had been satisfied, the state could lay a foundation, and its probative value outweighed any prejudicial effect. End of quote. In considering the foundation laid prior to admission, the Supreme Court noted, quote, Agent Downing explained that historical CSLI can only provide a general location of a cell phone based on its connection to nearby cell phone towers, but with the use of timing advanced data, which existed in the present case, he was provided a distance measurement between the cell phone and the tower that allowed him to narrow down the possible location of the cell phone even further. McCullen asserts that the state failed to carry its burden of proving that historical CSLI analysis is reliable based on the factors identified in Daubert. McCullen also argues that Agent Downing's testimony was substantially more prejudicial than probative. The state responds that Daubert does not apply to the present case because historical CSLI analysis is not novel, but in any event, the circuit court's ruling was not an abuse of discretion. Additionally, the state argues that, because Agent Downing readily admitted that historical CSLI could not provide the precise location of a cell phone, it was not overly prejudicial. We agree with the state. Here, having reviewed the record, we conclude that the circuit court did not abuse its discretion when it admitted Agent Downing's testimony regarding historical CSLI analysis. 
The circuit court closely considered Agent Downing's testimony in accordance with the Daubert factors, concluding that the evidence was reliable because the underlying methodology had been tested by law enforcement, both civilian and military, and by the cell phone providers themselves. The circuit court further concluded that participation of professors at the Florida Institute of Technology, an entity that is presumably unaffiliated with the FBI, as well as cell phone engineers, in trainings provided to the CAST unit supported the reliability of the methodology. The circuit court had wide latitude in determining whether any of the Daubert factors were or were not reasonable measures of reliability in this particular case, and we cannot say that it exercised its discretion thoughtlessly. Accordingly, we affirm the circuit court on this point. End of quote. End of decision. In Mitchell v. State, 2023, ARC App 579, the Arkansas Court of Appeals rejected arguments that a prosecutor's comments to the jury as to the proper amount of a sentence were improper. In affirming, Judge Verdon explained, quote, Appellant Albert B. Mitchell pleaded guilty to first-degree battery in the stabbing of Shauna Yilmaz, and a Garland County jury sentenced him as a habitual offender to 40 years imprisonment. He argues on appeal that this case should be reversed and remanded for a new sentencing hearing because the prosecutor made an improper statement during his rebuttal closing argument regarding how much prison time Mitchell needs to get. We affirm. In the absence of manifest abuse of discretion, the reviewing court will not reverse a trial court's action in manners pertaining to its control, supervision, and determination of the propriety of arguments of counsel. Closing remarks that require reversal are rare and require an appeal to the jurors' passions. Although it is not good practice for counsel to inject their personal beliefs into the closing arguments, mere expressions of opinion by counsel in closing argument are not reversible error so long as they do not purposely arouse passion and prejudice. The trial court is in the best position to evaluate the potential for prejudice based on the prosecutor's remarks. End of quote. In this case, the prosecutor suggested that the jury sentence defendant to 40 years. The court instructed the jury to the range of sentences and gave the instruction that remarks of counsel are not evidence. There was no error. Quote, Here the trial court has similarly instructed the jury at Mitchell's sentencing hearing. Given that the jury had already received such an instruction, a separate admonition was not necessary. We cannot say that the trial court abused its discretion in overruling defense counsel's objection because the prosecutor was permitted to ask for the maximum punishment available and could also seek to impress upon the jury the seriousness of Yomaz's injury. End of quote. End of decision. Minor Child v. State, 2023, ARC App 592. The Arkansas Court of Appeals, in affirming a minor's adjudication as a delinquent and guilt of manslaughter, addressed many points, some of which are touched on here. Judge Wood explained, quote, Minor Child, or MC, appeals the Pope County Circuit Court's order adjudicating her delinquent and committing her to the Division of Youth Services following a jury trial at which she was found guilty of manslaughter. On appeal, MC argues that the circuit court abused its discretion by 1. admitting testimony about her prior bad acts, 
Two, excluding evidence of the victim's abusive conduct that MC sought to introduce in support of her justification defense. And three, denying two motions for mistrial. We affirm. On July 18, 2019, MC shot her father, Edward Arnold, in the chest with a 12-gauge shotgun as he slept on a couch in the family's living room. The shot went through Edward's heart and he died within seconds. MC was 15 years old at the time and was under juvenile court supervision in a Family in Need of Services, or FINS, case that had been filed by Edward and MC's mother, Melinda. Less than three hours before the shooting, Edward discovered MC in her parents' bedroom smoking a cigarette and using a cell phone in violation of house rules and the FINS order. By all accounts, Edward became angry, was yelling at MC, and told her she was going back to juvenile detention or to another treatment facility. MC was made to sleep on a pallet on the living room floor with her parents sleeping nearby on couches. After both parents fell asleep, she went to her parents' bedroom, got her father's shotgun, and shot him as he slept. Following the shooting, MC fled in Edward's truck. Melinda called 911 and police located MC a short time later in a school parking lot with her school friend and Mark McQuaid, an adult male whom MC was not supposed to contact. MC was arrested and later gave a custodial statement to a Pope County deputy sheriff. End of quote. Prior bad act evidence under Arkansas Rule of Evidence 404B. The circuit court allowed evidence of previous wrongful conduct, and this was no error because it was independently relevant and admissible under Arkansas Rule of Evidence 404B. Quote, N.C. argues that the following evidence violates Rule 404B. One, the testimony of Jamie Davis, M.C.'s probation officer in the Finns case, that MC's family sought the court's assistance in the Finn's case in part because she had been sneaking a boy into the home and having a sexual relationship with him and had inappropriately used her cell phone. Two, the testimony of two deputy sheriffs that there had been an ongoing problem with MC contacting McQuaid and allowing him, him into her home and that MC had run away. And three, the testimony of M.C. and her mother that M.C. had a sexual encounter with McQuaid and that her parents discovered him hiding in her bedroom closet one night, that M.C. had used her phone to take pictures of herself nude and to send them to people, that her parents were concerned and upset about her conduct, and that she had been disciplined for it. The foregoing testimony concerns facts that led Edward and Melinda to file the Finns case seeking the court's help in addressing MC's misconduct. The Finns order was entered just three weeks before MC killed Edward, and as previously noted, MC's smoking and cell phone use in violation of the order is what prompted the confrontation that preceded the shooting. MC acknowledges that in a pretrial order, the circuit court ruled that the state would be permitted to introduce evidence about her Finn's case and her relationship with McQuaid as proof of her motive for killing her father. She does not challenge this ruling and, in fact, conceded below that her conduct involving the use of her phone and her involvement with McQuaid was relevant to her motive. Further, MC stipulated to the admissibility of the Finn's order at trial. End of quote. The Court of Appeals ruled such evidence was properly allowed. Quote, 
Here, testimony about the serious nature and extent of MC's high-risk misconduct at as an adolescent, which was not reflected in the Finn's order itself, was relevant because it tended to show, as a counterpoint to MC's evidence of abuse, that Edward was a concerned parent who sought the Finn's order to help his daughter. It further was relevant because it helped to explain Edward's strong reaction to MC's violation of the Finn's order on the night she killed him, and to explain MC's understanding of the seriousness of her violation of the order and the likelihood that she would be confined again for treatment. The evidence thus supported the state's theory that MC did not kill her father because she feared imminent death or the continuation of abuse. Accordingly, we hold that the testimony concerning the nature of MC's prior misconduct in relation to the Finn's case was relevant to the charge of murder under Rule 404B. End of quote. Limitation of Opinion Evidence by a Lay Witness While the trial court allowed the defendant's mother to testify the defendant's father called her names and had hit and struck her, it excluded defendant's mother's allegation of PTSD because as a lay witness, opinion evidence is limited by Arkansas Rule of Evidence 701. Quote, Whether one has a psychological disorder because of her experience of trauma and how a psychological diagnosis affects one's mental state exceed the permissible limits of lay opinion testimony under Rule 701 because they are not inferences that a lay person would form from the observed facts and are not within the common experience of most people. Arkansas Rule of Evidence 701. Such opinions require scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge that would bring such testimony within the scope of expert witness testimony under Arkansas Rule of Evidence 702. And MC conceded below that Melinda lacked specialized medical training. Therefore, we hold that the circuit court did not abuse its discretion in precluding Melinda from testifying that MC developed PTSD from Edward's abuse and how that diagnosis affected her mental state on the night of the shooting. Limitation of a Clinical Psychologist Opinion Evidence MC expressly stated that she was not offering Dr. Moraes' testimony to disprove her purposeful culpable mental state. She proffered Dr. Moraes' testimony on the narrow issue of whether her belief that her life was in imminent danger or that she was imminently about to be victimized in a continuation of a pattern of domestic abuse was reasonable. It is not relevant that MC because she suffers from PTSD, had a subjective belief that she was in imminent danger of being victimized. Instead, the issue is whether a reasonable person under the circumstances would have believed that she or he was in imminent danger. Therefore, Dr. Morace's testimony that MC has PTSD would not assist the jury in determining whether her belief was objectively reasonable. In fact, Such testimony might confuse the jury by causing it to think that MC's diagnosis should be considered, despite the jury instruction, based on the justification statute, telling them that the standard is that of an ordinary and prudent person. Accordingly, we cannot say that the circuit court abused its discretion and excluded Dr. Morace's testimony. Exclusion of Audio Recording 
We cannot say the circuit court abused its discretion by restricting evidence of Edwards' prior bad acts to those directed at M.C., considering that the premise of her justification defense was that she had a reasonable belief that she was imminently about to be victimized from a continuing pattern of domestic abuse. To the extent that evidence of Edwards' abuse of third parties bore some relevance to M.C.'s perception of imminent harm, the evidence risked jury confusion. Arkansas Rule of Evidence 403. And finally, we cannot say that the exclusion of the seven-minute recording of Edward threatening Melinda was prejudicial because M.C. and Melinda testified not only about disparaging comments Edward made to M.C. and derogatory names he called her, but also about physical abuse he inflicted on both her by hitting, slapping, choking, whipping, and punching her, and on family pets in M.C.'s presence. Exclusion of Evidence Regarding Decedent's Alleged Abuse of Siblings M.C. argues that the circuit court abused its discretion by excluding testimony about Edward's abuse of Melinda and two of M.C.'s older half-siblings, Amber and Tyler, who left the home more than a decade earlier when M.C. was no more than five years old. M.C. argues that the court's ruling limiting the admissible evidence of Edward's abuse to that which directly involved M.C., prevented her from informing the jury that Edward had abused her siblings in bizarre, cruel ways. During her testimony, M.C. briefly mentioned that her father had abused her mother and her siblings, although she did not provide any details of the abuse. The jury thus had some awareness of Edward's abuse of others. Finally, this court has held that a circuit court does not abuse its discretion by placing temporal limitations on the admission of evidence of a victim's violent acts. Here, the abuse of M.C.'s siblings had occurred more than a decade before the trial. Under these circumstances, we cannot say that the circuit court abused its discretion, nor can we say that M.C. suffered prejudice, considering the previously mentioned testimony that was admitted without restriction regarding Edward's abuse of M.C. We affirm the circuit court's decision to exclude the evidence of abuse inflicted on Melinda and M.C.'s half-siblings. Denial of Mistrial Motions On appeal, M.C. argues that the circuit court abused its discretion by denying her request for a mistrial when the state asked her if she had ever threatened her mother. She contends that whether she had threatened her mother was irrelevant in her trial for murdering her father, and the insinuation that she had done so was prejudicial. For reversal, she points to cases reversing denials of mistrial requests where state's witnesses testified to the defendant's prior bad acts that were unrelated to the charged offense. We hold that the circuit court did not abuse its discretion in denying M.C.'s motion for mistrial. First, contrary to M.C.'s argument, Her state of mind at the time of the shooting was relevant to both her intent and her justification defense. Evidence that M.C. threatened her mother with a shotgun after she had just used that gun to shoot and kill her father undermines M.C.'s claim of self-defense. Additionally, evidence that M.C. had threatened Melinda after the shooting had already been admitted into evidence at trial without objection. For example, Prior to the state's question that drew the first mistrial motion, Melinda's 911 call was played for the jury. Melinda can be heard on the recording stated that she, Melinda, had the gun and was not letting it go because MC was going to shoot Melinda and was going to use the gun on me. 
In MC's custodial statement, which was also played for the jury, the detective stated, This is important, and your mom had told me for just a moment that you kind of turned in her direction with a shotgun. What was the deal with that? MC gave a lengthy answer in which she indicated it was possible that her mother could have thought MC pointed the gun at her. Not only had evidence that MC threatened Melinda been introduced into evidence without objection before the mistrial motion was made, it was also introduced into evidence after the mistrial motion was made. Because evidence that MC threatened Melinda with a shotgun that MC used to shoot and kill Edward was admitted into evidence without objection before and after the mistrial motion, and because MC did not answer the question at issue, we hold that MC has failed to demonstrate that the circuit court's denial of her motion for mistrial was an error so prejudicial that justice cannot be served by continuing the trial. We affirm this point. End of quote. A second mistrial motion was properly denied as well. Quote, as previously discussed in a pretrial ruling, the circuit court denied the state's motion to exclude a recording that Belinda made of Edward verbally abusing her. The circuit court found that it was relevant on the issue of whether there was a pattern of domestic abuse for purposes of MC's justification defense. The court found that the recording was admissible if a proper foundation was made at trial. At trial, however, during MC's testimony, the circuit court reconsidered the admissibility of the recording and excluded it on the basis that the abuse and threats contained in the recording were directed to Melinda, not MC, and therefore the contents of the recording were not relevant to MC's justification defense. In response, MC moved for a mistrial, arguing that she was prejudiced by the circuit court's reversal because her lawyers had relied on the initial ruling that the recording was admissible, and counsel told the jury in opening statement that they would hear the recording. MC's counsel told the jury that Eddie says such wonderful things of, I'm going to knock you in the head, says that multiple times, and he says, I'm going to knock you the F out. MC's counsel argued that when the circuit court changed its ruling and the jury did not hear the recording, counsel lost credibility with the jury because it appeared as though counsel had lied. The circuit court denied MC's counsel's mistrial motion. In response, counsel requested an admonition and the court granted the request. The court read the jury an instruction prepared by MC's counsel, specifically admonishing the jurors to draw no inferences from any evidence regarding the domestic abuse of people other than MC that was mentioned in opening statements but subsequently deemed inadmissible by the court. End of quote. Judge Hickson wrote a concurring opinion. Quote, I agree with the majority that this case must be affirmed on the basis of the applicable laws enacted by our legislature and the Arkansas model jury instructions that track the language of those statutes. However, I write this concurring opinion to express my position that the legislature, or perhaps the Supreme Court, could, and perhaps should, reconsider since the statutes fail to consider our emotionally and mentally challenged population. I cannot conclude that the legislature intended to exclude a person's mental and physical challenges or disabilities in determining the reasonableness of a person's actions and therefore invite the legislature to revisit its legislation in this regard. However, because the circuit court's ruling was accurate according to the law as it currently stands, 
I must concur in the affirmance of appellant's conviction. Having said this, I make no opinion on whether allowing such testimony in the case at bar would have affected the jury's verdict. End of quote. End of decision.